0: Welcome, this is Jennifer Stock, I'm your host for Ocean Currents, and this show is held one one Thursday evening a month, every four weeks at 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., and the show is rebroadcast the following Monday at 1 p.m. And on Ocean Currents, we dive into ocean topics, talking about ocean science, research, how people use the ocean, and tonight about um, incredible crossings of the ocean with human power it's quite amazing story so tonight we're gonna to be talking with Roz Savage and within weeks Roz will be launching off the coast of San Francisco to take on the flight of a foraging albatross but by human power in a rowboat on the water itself she uses a 24-foot rowboat she is attempting to row from San Francisco California to Hawaii then on to American Samoa, and then on to Australia. She's doing this unsupported in regards to vessel support and solo. Roz is joining me tonight from Canada, where she is working out some of the preparations necessary for her to arrive in Hawaii. Thanks, Roz, for joining me tonight on Ocean Currents. Great to be here. Thank you. So Roz, your story isn't so inspiring. I want to give some background for our listeners. Um, You wrote about your previous life as a successful career woman, a marriage, seeming to have what many women want to achieve, but one day while on your daily commute, you wondered if, if this is what really life was about for you, and took on the exercise of writing two versions of your future obituary. One obituary detailed a life of adventure and living to one's true values of experiencing life to the fullest, living with guts and gusto and the other, a conventional, ordinary life with moments of excitement, but pretty safe and predictable. And you saw a disparity there and where your life was heading and where you wanted to go and decided it was time to shift course. What, what brought you from all of these huge events to decide to row across the Atlantic Ocean on your first endeavor? <laughs> Yeah, it was a bit of a change from the previous life as a management
1: consultant, I guess. It was actually more of a, an evolution rather than a, a revolution. It was quite a long time after the obituary exercise that I decided on rowing across the ocean. And I suppose I'd, I'd reached a stage where I'd made quite a lot of changes in my life already. I'd shifted away from this very materialistic lifestyle and into something that was a bit more... um based around a i suppose a, a sense of life purpose um maybe even a bit more of a spiritual agenda and um i felt like i was um making some useful and helpful changes and moving towards a more fulfilling life and i'd reached a point where i wanted to make some sort of grand gesture i suppose um i wanted to tackle a project that would be some sort of a statement about this different person that I was becoming. Uh The trouble was that there wasn't really very much that I was qualified to do in the way of adventures. Um, and... But I had done some rowing before and although rowing on the River Thames is about as different from rowing on the Atlantic as you can get, I suppose it was just enough to give me the happy delusion that this was something I was vaguely qualified to do. So um, I I decided that this was going to be my grand statement to row across the ocean and it was very important to me that this adventure had to be something environmentally friendly because that was part of the whole direction that my life was now moving. In away from that materialistic consumerist society, and into living a bit more in tune with what I felt were more authentic values and, and more in tune with nature. So um, it was very important to me that whatever I did had to be environmentally low impact and would hopefully provide me with a, a platform to maybe try and show other people how they could be uh, how they could live in a slightly more environmentally friendly way as well.
0: That's wonderful. Did you have uh, much practice rowing on the ocean before you decided to hop on the Atlantic?
1: Very little. Well, I (laughs) I basically made the decision and then got a little bit of practice. Um, But even when I set out across the Atlantic, I had been out on the ocean. And when I say ocean, I mean very much coastal waters around England. I'd been out on the water maybe uh, three or four times and for no more than an hour or so at a time. So it was a pretty massive leap into the unknown. Thank heavens. I think if I'd known at the start just how hard it was (laughs) going to be, I might not have done it.
0: Sometimes it's better not to know, right? Absolutely, yes.
1: I actually think there are a lot of similarities between rowing an ocean and um, and childbirth, because it's only when you're irrevocably committed and there's no way out (laughs) that you actually find out just how tough it is. (laughs) And by then the only way is forwards.
0: Oh, right on. So what, what were the two points of crossing for the Atlantic Ocean? I set out from the Canaries, just
1: off the coast of Africa. And I arrived 103 days later in Antigua, in the Caribbean.
0: Wow, 103 days later. Now, I read on your website, which is so fa- fantastic, I, want, I hope listeners will check it out and read all about your, your agenda here, rossavage.com. But you had some extreme challenges on this boat from the very beginning. You had a lot of shoulder pain. Um, at one point, your boat capsized. You lost belongings. At several points. Oars broke.
1: Oh, yes, you name it, it happened. Um, well, I started out, the first couple of days, I was sick as a dog. I was so seasick. Um, but I knew that was going to happen because I had done a little bit of sailing beforehand. So I was kind of prepared for that. i What happened next got me really indignant though, which was when my shoulders started to hurt, because I had done so much training for that row, precisely so that I wouldn't have problems with my body breaking down, so to end up with this tendonitis in my shoulders so early on was was disappointing to say the least. And then, after that, all as well as my body breaking down, all my electronics started breaking um things like my my stereo, so I had no music after that my My camping stove broke, so after the first few weeks, all my food was eaten cold um towards the end, my satellite phone broke, so for the last month, I wasn't able to communicate with dry land at all. My only communication from then on was um on about three occasions in the space of three and a half weeks when I managed to hail passing ships. Um, but probably the most serious thing in the way of breakages was the fact that all my all four of my oars, my two main ones, and my two spares they all broke before halfway. So did you have to repair those? I did, yes. Um, I was really determined that I didn't want to call for a resupply of oars. Uh, I really wanted to do this thing entirely unsupported, do it my own way. So I just patched up my oars. Uh, luckily, I had a boat hook on board, um, which like a, a long pole with a hook on the end. And there was no apparent reason why I decided to take this random object with me. Um, normally, you would use them to hook up a, a mooring buoy and obviously there aren't too many of those in the middle of the <laughs> Atlantic <in> <laughs> Ocean but I was—I just thought it might come in handy for something and I was so glad that I had it with me because I was able to use that as um, splints for two of my oars and I had three rolls of duct tape on board and I used all of it I just lashed these splints very tightly to the oars and it meant the oars were a bit cumbersome and unwieldy they were a bit off balance which didn't help the shoulder problem much But it did at least mean that I could carry on unsupported and maintain my independence. And it was actually quite a source of satisfaction to me. Because on dry land, I'm not the handiest person in the world. But there was something quite nice about overcoming these challenges, all these breakages, and just managing to to carry on. And it's amazing what resources you find when you really have no choice.
0: So... Uh, how about the some of the phys- the challenges of the environment um there's definitely the the things that we need in or i mean you needed oars to move forward basic thing in addition to the food and water how about the waves and the darkness the um how did you know you were on course and if you were going in the right direction
1: um uh, well let me take those one at a time um the waves at times were pretty big um so big that i just chose not to look at some of them um <laughs> <laughs> just to um sort of put it into context i was actually doing the atlantic as an entrant in a race i was the only solo woman in the atlantic rowing race so there were 26 boats set out at the same time most of them were crews of two or four people and out of those 26 boats Six of them capsized or sank, um, and in fact one was attacked oh by God. a shark, Ooh. and those crews had to be rescued. They withdrew from the race; um, they were all picked up off their boats, and um, and didn't make it to Antigua. So um, compared with them, I suppose I was I was very fortunate that the ocean allowed me to cross. Um, then you you asked about the darkness. There were some nights it were beautiful there would be a full moon and I could actually see the moon shadow on the deck Mm. and there was plenty enough light but then there were other nights when I could barely see the hand in front of my face when it was overcast or there was no moon and those nights could be um, I didn't actually mind the darkness too much if I started thinking about all the creatures lurking beneath me i pretty quickly stopped myself thinking about those and um, tried to think about something a bit less scary instead. Um, I think ocean rowing is very psychological. There are a lot of things that could really freak you out if you think about them too much. And you just have to tell yourself to focus on the things that you can control and try not to think too much about the things that are beyond your control, like storms and sharks and things like that.
0: Take one thing at a time, I guess.
1: Absolutely. And that was actually a mistake that I made at the start. I I, I did, on occasions, allow the whole the scale of the project to get on top of me because when you've got 3,000 miles to go and you're moving at slower than walking speed, my average speed is about two miles an hour, um, it can look pretty daunting what, what lies ahead.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I learned probably within the first month... Um, by doing it the wrong way initially, but life was a lot easier if I just looked at the next day or the next rowing shift or even just the next mile and just kept ticking off those miles and thinking well there's one mile, I never have to row again wonderful apart from the times when I got blown backwards, of course, and then <laughs> I did have to row them again
0: so how did that how does that work actually because I mean with being in such a light vessel and Being human-powered, there isn't something to keep you motoring while you need to rest or sleep. How do you keep? try not to go backwards? Well, well, generally, the trade winds were
1: blowing me in the right direction, Um, but not invariably. I had three days in a row when I was just going backwards. I had a sea anchor, which is like a big parachute on the end of a rope that you put out underneath the water. It hovers at about 10 feet under the waves and grabs hold of about a tonne of ocean. And that stops you being blown backwards quite so much. But... it's more damage limitation rather than damage prevention. Mm -hmm. So you do still lose a bit of ground, Mm -hmm. but it could have been a lot worse. But generally, the winds were blowing me in the right direction-ish while I slept. When I say the right direction, provided I was going a bit west and a bit south, I wasn't too fussed about being specific. So my my route across the Atlantic was fairly meandering, but um, it was generally forwards moving.
0: So, for those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Roz Savage, a a rower who has successfully rowed across the Atlantic and is getting ready to row the Pacific Ocean. So, let's get familiar with your boat a little bit. I've seen pictures, but I'm sure many listeners are not familiar, because when I think of a rowboat, I think of my Catalina Weary sitting at home, open deck, and... Um, Very open and exposed, but your boat is a 24-foot boat and has many provisions to help make this a comfortable or um, manageable voyage. Can you tell us a little bit about your boat, which is named Sedna?
1: that's right um well i'll try to describe it um and actually as of today my boat's about to be renamed we just Ooh. um i just signed the contract with a title sponsor so my boat is now going to be called brocade oh
0: um
1: uh, which is a company based out of san jose they're a, a Company and I'm very excited about this because um, I ended up financing the Atlantic Row mostly out of a divorce settlement, which unfortunately is not really a financially sustainable model <laughs> unless I get married in divorce between each ocean row. So this is this is great. This is finally getting onto a, a more professional footing, and I'm very excited to be working with Brookage. They are being tremendously supportive, and importantly for me, they are environmentally aware and reducing their carbon footprint. So that's fantastic news. So anyway, now I will try to describe my boat. <laughs> um, yes, as you say, she's 24 foot long, but she's probably quite a bit wider than your average rowboat. She's six foot wide. and Most importantly, she's got two watertight cabins, one for storage and one for sleeping in. And as well as providing living space and storage space, those cabins are also my buoyancy chambers. So that if the boat capsizes, um, the air that's trapped inside those cabins will bring the boat the right way up again because all the weight's in the bottom of the boat and then you've got these big air pockets in the top of the boat so if the boat turns over she's very unstable in that position and will flip the right way up again Mm. so um she's um she's pretty sleek looking she's silver and looks a little bit like a almost like a spaceship and the rowing position is in the middle uh, which is pretty much like a conventional rowing position. I've got two oars, um, a short rigger sticking out on each side, and a sliding seat. Um, and then in the stern of the boat is my sleeping cabin, which if you picture probably a queen-sized bed, but a bed that tapers down to a point at one end. And um, the height of the cabin, there's just enough room in there for me to sit up if I sit cross-legged so it's pretty cozy even for me Um, and some of these boats are used by two strapping big blokes so I I don't envy them when there's a storm and they're both confined to the cabin Um, so in that cabin is where I sleep where I store some of my food and where I've got all my electronics my satellite phone all my other bits of technology Um, so moving along the boat there's the the sleeping cabin in the stern end, then the rowing position in the middle, and then up at the, the bow end is just a, a storage cabin. And also underneath the decks, I've got lots more storage space, and that's where I keep most of my food to keep the weight down low. And I also have, very importantly, my water maker. Which is oh, a miniature desalination plant that sucks in seawater and through a series of filters and reverse osmosis produces fresh water, which means that I don't have to take a full three month supply of fresh water with me. Wonderful. And that's powered by my solar panels, which are mounted on the deck of the sleeping cabin.
0: Wow, that's such a great example of a completely green machine.
1: Absolutely. Um, yes, totally self sufficient energy-wise and everything else-wise as well. And for the Pacific, I'm going to be adding a wind generator.
0: Oh, wow. That'll be interesting.
1: Yeah. In fact, I'm doing quite a cool thing with a team from Stanford. Um, They have a video blog called the Smart Energy Show, and they're going to be monitoring the uh, power generation from my solar panels and my wind generator, and also monitoring how much electricity I'm using. And there'll be little cute little applets on there so people can guess how much electricity is being produced based on the weather for that day. So um, I'm doing lots of stuff like this on the Pacific Road, sending back all kinds of data. I've got physiological testing equipment. I sit little electrodes on myself that tell me how exhausted I am. And um, I'm also doing a psychological case study to judge how sane I remain <laughs> while I'm out there. <laughs> and I'll be sending back meteorological data as well and navigational data about how many miles I've done and also environmental data. My specific environmental message for the Pacific is about... um plastic debris in the world's oceans because unfortunately the world's oceans are becoming the marine equivalent of a landfill. A lot of rubbish comes from the land, blows into storm drains and into streams and into rivers and of course it just ends up in the ocean which is where the buck stops and there's a lot of, over the, the last few decades, the problem is just escalating exponentially. And as the debris, and especially the plastics, as those break down into smaller pieces, they get ingested by marine animals. They get into the food chain and ultimately, of course, they get into us because we're at the top of the food chain. So I'm just trying to use my Pacific row to say to people, just be aware of where a lot of this rubbish ends up and just yet another good reason to reduce your use of plastics, just reuse, recycle, and reduce the amount that you you use. So I'd really like to use this row to bring awareness to that. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm going to be tagged as part of the Pacific Pelagics Project. So um, I'm going to be... um, Bringing attention to that as well, people will be able to track turtles and sharks and dolphins and whales and see where they are in relation to me. and I'm just really hoping to engender a bit more respect for the oceans because I think for a lot of people it's out of sight and out of mind
2: it really whereas is. in
1: fact they are a an essential part of the the whole earth's ecosystem.
0: I think it's amazing that you're you're one of the very few people uh, of course, a lot of sailors have this experience that really have that tune of what it's like out there so far away from everything and it's going to be wonderful that you're sharing it with with the public, with all your the data coming back? Well, I think um, as
1: regards marine life and the the plastics, um, I'm actually in a unique position to bring back an eyewitness account because I'm very close to the water and I'm also travelling very slowly. So the plan is that I'm going to be logging any items of debris that I see while I'm out there Mm -hmm. and sending back reports of that, what it is and how big it is and which way it's headed. And hopefully just... Bring back, um, direct experience of what's happening out there because it's, it's very difficult to know and it's just an issue that most people aren't aware of. And I'm very excited that, um, Dr. Curtis Ebersmeyer is going to be providing a commentary on my website about what I see out there. Um, Dr. Kurt is the, um, also known as the Nike sneakers guy or the rubber ducks mm-hmm. guy and he tracks the ocean currents by seeing where these items that have broken free from containers that have gone overboard seeing where they wash up so it's going to be it's really great that he's involved with my project as well
0: wonderful speaking of currents and data how have you prepared and studied for um, creating your your route your plan what types of data are you accessing to create this plan well, there are many dimensions to it. At the moment, I'm daily keeping track on
1: one of the NOAA weather buoys. Um, there's one just about 18 miles west of San Francisco, and that's pretty much on my route, and it's the part of my route that I'm most anxious about. Getting away from San Francisco is going to be really difficult um, because immediately in that onshore area, the the winds are generally blowing from the the west, So as I'm trying to head out to the west, they're going to be against me. And ocean rowboats are really not designed for going against the wind. So I'm keeping a very close eye on what that particular buoy is sending back in the way of data. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really hoping and praying that um, after I go on standby on July the 11th, I'm hoping that we might get a period of a few days of relatively calm conditions where I can actually make some headway away from the coast, um, hopefully, get out to the the farallones or well actually i won 't really sleep easy until i 'm a good two hundred miles <laughs> clear of the coast and my route 's also going to take me um through a, a number of the marine sanctuaries um by happy coincidence um, but um when it actually comes to determining my route, I need to take so many different factors into account there are the winds, there are the currents tides um trying to avoid hurricanes um Another fact that somebody mentioned the other day was um, sharks. She pointed out to me that um, I will be setting out directly through the red triangle where there's a disproportionately large number of shark attacks just off the coast of California. So um, needless to say, I won't be doing too much swimming in the early (laughs) days of the row.
0: Well, well, as long as you stay in your boat, you should be just fine. I think so, yes.
1: (laughs) I don't think my boat looks especially like a, a, a yummy tidbit to sharks.
0: Well, hopefully there won't be too many elephant seals around to distract you. Um, So why did you choose San Francisco on this part of the coastline? Why not choose a, a point further south or even further north? What drew you to San Francisco to be your departure point?
1: It's purely sentimental reasons, really. It's just, it would be such a dream to depart under the Golden Gate Bridge. San Francisco is one of my favorite cities, and it's just such an iconic image that it'd be really fantastic if that works out. But at the same time, I realise that I probably couldn't have picked a more difficult place to leave from. Uh there's a, a Turkish guy, Erdin Eruk, who is doing a very ambitious seven year project around the world involving he's already rowed the Atlantic as I have, and he's now setting out to row across the Pacific. And he first tried to set out on june the second and as far as I'm aware he's still in San Francisco. So I'm very grateful to him for showing just how difficult it is to get away from the coast. But at the same time, I wish him luck. I know he's trying to leave again just around about now. So I'm really hoping that he manages to get away this time.
0: It's been a really tough spring with these winds that we've had. So
1: Indeed. Well, if, if at first I don't succeed, if I don't manage to get away from San Francisco, then you may well see me arriving up in Point Reyes where you are, because <laughs> that would give me a much better head start towards the west.
0: Wonderful. So um, as far as choosing the time of year, was there a specific weather pattern that you were following where you thought the spring would be a good time to launch off? Is this where you were looking at um, currents, tide, Opinions storms? Opinions
1: seem to vary. It's quite interesting when it comes to matters oceanic that... Many people have strong opinions, and obviously, um, often those opinions are diametrically opposed. (laughs) Um, But weighing up the various factors and um, the general consensus, with some notable exceptions, is that although this is hurricane season, the hurricanes are generally further south. Um, Although September there might be calmer conditions off the coast of um, San Francisco, um, I wouldn't get as consistent trade winds later on, so it just seems to be this is the best balance of all these competing and conflicting factors, the best balance between reliable trade winds, avoiding hurricanes, and relatively calm conditions. So. There's just so much luck involved, though. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that the weather gods choose to smile on me and good. allow me safe passage.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a lot of trade-offs because you get got the coast with the uh, intense coastal winds, but then once you get past that, another trade-off for as you approach more tropical waters towards Hawaii.
1: That's right. I don't claim to be a weather expert, but I'm very fortunate to have a number of well qualified and very experienced people advising me. So I, I know my limitations. I'm um in some ways I could be I think my job description does require a certain amount of stubbornness and pig headedness but I also I know what I don't know and I'm very willing to listen to wiser people than I am.
0: Fabulous. It must have been really interesting researching, getting ready for this. It
1: really has been. I've really, really enjoyed the preparations. I've made a lot of friends in the last 12 months in the U.S. while I've been busy preparing for this. I've traveled the length and breadth of the country. I had to go and pick my boat up from Florida, where she arrived after I got her shipped from Antigua to um, to Florida. So I was there, she was on exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa for a while, so I did a couple of presentations there and made some very good friends over in that part of the world and then drove the boat the whole way across the country and she certainly attracts a fair bit of attention she's an unusual looking craft and I soon realized I had to allow at least an extra 10 minutes at every gas station stop (laughs) because
0: people would come over and just say now what kind of a boat is that interesting it was fun that's great well Roz we need to just take a short break Please, Mm -hmm. please stay with us folks we'll be right back okay You're listening to KWMR, 90.5 FM in Point Reyes Station and 89.3 in Bolinas. You're listening to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and I have Roz Savage on the phone with me from Canada. Roz is preparing to row across the Pacific And we've been talking a lot about rowing, um, her past row of rowing across the Atlantic Oceans. I wanted to just hear a little bit more. You were talking about some of your technology on board and, and your, um, electronics. And you said you have a satellite phone and you mentioned you had the loss of the phone use at part of, um, towards the end of your row. What was that like when you lost total communication with, with, I believe it was your mom that was helping keep you on course and whatnot?
1: Yes, um, yes, mum was my shore manager. She knows absolutely nothing about the oceans or weather, but um, she was free. That's <laughs> um, great. Actually, when the phone broke, um, I was actually really pleased. That might sound strange. I was obviously very worried for my mother because I knew that she would be very anxious about me. But purely selfishly, it was actually part of the reason that I wanted to go out on the ocean was just to have the peace and the quiet and the solitude and the opportunity to just be on my own and just have the time and the space to think. And although it was great having interaction with people via my website while I was out on the Atlantic, um, I'd been doing that for two and a half months by the time the phone broke. And it was actually just really nice to have the change just to be totally self-sufficient and I felt really lucky because how many of us have that opportunity just to totally get away from the world for a a, it was three and a half weeks I was without the phone wow so although I was anxious for mum um It was actually, I I felt that was a very special time. And in fact, for me, it was really when I felt that all the the lessons that I'd learned about the coping mechanisms, and I'd been through all these struggles, largely issues of self-doubt and just wondering if I could really rise to this challenge. I felt that after the phone broke, that was when it all actually really came good, and I I learned that I was a strong enough person to to really cope with this channel, uh, with this challenge without having anybody to help me, even just on on the end of a phone.
0: Mm-hmm. Was you are still being tracked though, right? So she could see progress that you were making. That's right. Oh, yes, that's um,
1: I was very pleased that that happened. Um, I had this Argos beacon on board, which showed my position on a website so mum could still track this little purple blob moving at a very slow pace across the ocean so that was some source of consolation to her and um, um, that's why I'm really pleased at this time around I've got these two beacons because one of them is directly wired into my electrical system so if for some reason my electrical system fails then thanks to the Pacific pelagic beacon, Um, I will look like an albatross going very slowly across the Pacific Ocean. But this time around, I'm taking two satellite phones, so hopefully I will have ongoing communication.
0: Well, I just want to mention, since you are being tracked, um, there are some researchers at Oikono's Ecosystem Knowledge. They're a, a non-profit group of marine scientists that will be uh, tagging some black-footed albatross from the Cordell Bank Sanctuary in the next coming weeks, and they're studying where do albatrosses go during this off-breeding season when they um, are not breeding at their islands in the Hawaiian Islands, and And it's really interesting to see where they go. And so it's going to be interesting to watch you tracking across to Hawaii and seeing where these birds are going in between. And who knows, maybe you'll see one on your way. I would love to, yes.
1: Although I suspect they probably move a lot faster than I do.
0: (laughs) They might. (laughs) If folks want to um, see that, they can go to oikonos.org, and we'll give that website out at the end again, too, to track them. But I also wanted to let you know, Roz, that we're working with a group of students, this or teachers this fall, that will be learning how to track animals such as albatrosses and sharks and elephant seals in the classroom with their students and we're working to have them track you as well. So there'll be hundreds Fantastic. of students uh, tracking both the albatrosses and Roz Savage across the ocean. So you'll have a moment to um, share all that with the students that'll be watching you.
1: I would love that. That would be wonderful. And while we're mentioning organisations, I ought to really mention that um, I'm doing my row as a project of the Blue Frontier Campaign, which is a small non-profit, and they support grassroots efforts to uh, for marine conservation. And they've been absolutely fantastic to me and um, I think the work that they do, they work with a lot of the larger non-profits as well but it's all around marine conservation so it's a really worthwhile cause and I'm very pleased with the opportunity to bring a little bit more awareness to their agenda.
0: That's wonderful and I also know that you, I mean you've connected to everybody, you'll be doing a, a special delivery of a message in a bottle.
1: Yeah, from... this is going to be fun, yes. Um, on behalf of Noah, I shall be carrying um, I believe it's one of the old. Um, now, what did they call them? The bottles that they use for tracking ocean currents.
0: I think it was the U.S. Geodetic Survey that used these bottles, and it's a historic bottle that was able to be found to um, put a special, a special message in for you. That's right.
1: It's going to be a secret message. There's going to be a ceremonial handing over the bottle at um, an event in San Francisco. And then, hopefully, assuming that I arrive safely in Hawaii, there'll be a ceremonial uncorking of the bottle. And... um will read out the, the message at that end of the journey
0: well I, we, was, we here at the sanctuaries thought this was a really symbolic opportunity because you are crossing from two inc- incredibly important marine protected areas from the Gulf mm. of the Farallons, Monterey Bay, National Marine Sanctuary through across to the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary. So you're connecting these two really important areas. It'll be fun to hear what the message is on the other side. I can't wait. <laughs> I don't suppose I'm allowed to sneak a look on the way across, that? Uh, <laughs> well, you just can't type it up for your blog yet, that's all. <laughs>
1: I think it's got to be properly sealed. In fact, if it's a paper message in the bottle, I would definitely <laughs> advise that it's very thoroughly sealed because seawater gets into all kinds of unfeasible places.
0: So um, what is, I was thinking about some of the, you know, tuning in when you lost the phone and you really, that was when you really felt good and, and able to really tune in. However, there are lots of survival um, material things that you need on your boat. But what's the one thing besides the survival um, necessities like food and water that you have on your vessel that you just, you really, really value. And it's the one thing you would grab if you absolutely had to.
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Actually, if if it was coming down to, to one thing, I am actually going to risk taking my beloved Mac laptop with me. Um <laughs> one of your sponsors? <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. Um, so, I'm afraid being very practical, that's probably the one thing that I really would grab. All the data will be backed up, of course, um, on dry land, but I would be pretty sad to leave that behind. Or maybe the the case of um, video recordings that I'll be doing while I'm out there, my video diary and all the footage that I capture. But I think there's one other thing that I would probably take as well. Um, I At the moment, I drive a yellow pickup truck, bright yellow. And in it, I've got this <laughs> silly little duck that on his chest, it says, please squeeze me. And when you squeeze it, <laughs> this little duck goes quack, quack, quack. <laughs> <laughs> and it just never fails to to quack me up and <laughs> it's just if things get really bad out there I'll be I'll be squeezing quackers he'll be doing this stupid little quacking thing at me and it just always makes me laugh that's great so I think quackers would have to come in the life raft with me as well
0: Oh, okay. So um, we only have a few minutes left, and since one of the main goals of your rowing is to really do something that's ecologically or environmentally friendly, and mm. is there one thing that you'd like to sh- let listeners know about their role in protecting the ocean? Well,
1: I think it's it's often easy for people to feel that what they do as an individual can't make a difference. But... The cumulative effect of lots of people acting as individuals is huge, absolutely huge. So I think my key message would be not to wait for the the government to impose restrictions on use of plastic bags or for um, plastic bags to be withdrawn from circulation altogether. The thing is, every little... Act of every single person does make a difference. In fact, as it says in the Blue Frontier Campaign's book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, we're already all making a difference, but it's up to us as individuals to decide whether we're making a good difference or a bad difference. So just believe that you are making a difference and, and try and make it a good one. Just Buy your reusable tote bags to take to the supermarket rather than using plastic bags um always carry bags with you so in a in a store you don't need to use a new one and just just be mindful, just think about the consequences and I don't always live up to my high expectations or my high ideals of being environmentally friendly, but I'm aware and I, I do my best and I think that's all that we can do. And there's there's no need to despair about things. I think sometimes these problems are painted as being so enormous that people just feel helpless and hopeless about it. But it's not too late and it really, apart from anything else, it just feels good. if you If you do... The right thing by the environment, you just feel a little bit more proud of yourself. You think, "Well, I did my bit."
0: Wonderful, excellent answer. I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> that's what we strive for—is just that one thing we can do is is a difference, and that's fabulous. Absolutely. Roz, last question: What do you think the? How do you think the Pacific will be different than the Atlantic? I'm
1: hoping it's going to be nicer. I didn't have a lot of fun on the Atlantic. I think, apart from anything else, I learned enough about myself on the Atlantic to know just psychologically how to cope with things a bit better. It's almost like a fast track intensive training course in life skills. When you go out on the ocean it's, it's a pretty challenging environment and I feel that I learned a lot by doing it the wrong way about how to make life a little bit more tolerable for myself. I'm hoping that when I'm out on the Pacific, I'll click back into that way of being a bit faster. And and also, just as as oceans go, I'm told by some people, and I'm choosing to believe this, that the Pacific is indeed a little bit more peaceful, that although the waves are large, they are longer and less choppy than on the Atlantic. So I'm hoping for a, a gentler, kinder passage this time.
0: Well, Roz, we wish you smooth sailing all the way and rowing, of course. <laughs>
1: yes. And we rowers are very sensitive about the sailing word. That's right. So thank you Rowing. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: hopefully a little wind will help you along, too.
1: That would be very much appreciated. <laughs> and if not, you'll have to ask all your listeners to stand on the west coast of California and blow hard.
0: All right. We'll do our best. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking some time to share your stories with us. It's just wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank
1: you very much.
0: For those of you that would love to follow Roz or get tuned in with what she's doing right now, she's got a fantastic website up, rozsavage.com. That's R-O-Z-S-A-V-A-G-E.com. Thanks so much, Roz. Thank you. And we're going to take just a short break, and when I come back in a few moments, we'll be talking with Jim Farley, who is the director of the Marin County Fair, which is coming up, and it has an ocean theme this year, so we'll hear some highlights about that. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. Please stay with us. On the line here, I have Jim Farley from the Marin Fair. Fair from the He's the Director of Cultural and Visitor Services for the County of Marin, and he's the Director of the Marin County Fair. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Jennifer, and listening to your comments in that song, we certainly hope waves of people uh, (laughs) come to the Marin County Fair Saturday, uh, June 30th through Wednesday, July 4th.
0: So, we're rounding the bend uh, for the beginning of the County Fair. And how did the theme of the San Francisco Bay and surrounding ocean waters become the theme for the fair this year?
2: Well, each year we try to select a theme that people in Marin County care about. And in the past, we celebrated such themes as the legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright, the Golden Gate Bridge. And one of our commission members, Annette Rosa Sausalito, suggested that we celebrate the people who live, work, and play on the Pacific Ocean the San Francisco Bay, and not to forget the Richardson, Tomales, and Drake's Bay here in Marin County. And these are all the people that care about marine animals, marine ecosystems, the health of our oceans, the health of our bays, and are working towards a, a brighter future.
0: Wonderful. So besides the typical highlights of the fair, of the, the rides, and the fireworks, and music, and fabulous food, what events at the fair will be featuring our watershed and the surrounding waters you just described?
2: Well, three things. Um, first of all, we have the Hudson Vagabond Giant Puppets from New York. They're performing a show called The Silly Jellyfish for fairgoers of all ages. And they have a 40-foot uh, whale, uh, a great white shark, even a jellyfish. And they tell the stories about creatures under the seas and how to best live together. Secondly, from the Moss Landing Marine Laboratories, we have the sea lion encounters, 12, 2, 4, and 6 o'clock each day. And this is a way for fairgoers to get to know sea lions, California sea lions, what they're like, what their lives are our lives are like, and how important they are to the Monterey Bay, specifically, and the ocean, and obviously the future of our marine ecosystem. But lastly, and perhaps most importantly, because we have so many great community partners, is a new pavilion called Aquatic Adventures. We're working with about 30 marine organizations, ranging from the Cordell Bank Marine Sanctuary, the Point Reyes National Seashore Marine Mammal Center, Bay Model, and so forth to really create an exhibit that lets Marinites know about all the wonderful work that's being done in the community, um, whether it's on behalf of marine animals, whether it's on behalf of the San Francisco Bay, on the health of Drake's Bay, Richardson Bay, et cetera. And so we're really excited about it because it's really brought together this wonderful group of people with wonderful stories to to share for uh, fair guests.
0: It's wonderful. I'm excited to hear about the puppets. Are, there, are the puppets going to be there every single day? Every a day,
2: and they perform at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And these are giant puppets. And the Silly Jellyfish is an old Japanese folktale. And so um, we have uh, whether whale and jellyfish puppets. We have real-life California sea lions. And if you come to the Aquatic Adventures Pavilion, you can actually see models of ele- northern elephant seals, an orca whale, and a thresher shark among the really interesting exhibits. So we've got everything covered from puppets to models to actually real-life marine animals at the fair.
0: I'll just mention that the um, the sanctuaries here, Gulf of the Fairlands and Cordell Bank, you know this, Jim, but the listeners, um, Gulf of the Fairlands and Cordell Bank are working with the Marine Mammal Center as well as Point Reyes National Seashore to host our exhibits there, but also we're going to have our the elephant seal dosets from the Park Service here to interpret those amazingly huge, life-size elephant seals at the event, so folks will be able to hear a little bit more about elephant seals and when they can see them for real.
2: I think it'll be, you know, we have over 100,000 people who come to the fair, so our hope is that fairgoers are entertained by the fireworks, the concerts, and the carnival rides, but we also hope during their stay, and we know this will happen, that they there's an educational process that goes on, and certainly we we love the fact that the organizations you just mentioned are going to share their stories with fair guests, and will come away from the... Um, Fair enriched, and then obviously perhaps in the future support these organizations or certainly go out, for example, and visit and see the northern elephant seals and their habitat out at the uh, seashore.
0: That's great. So how about inside Aquatic Adventures? I know there's a couple special things in there that people might be able to experience or sit down and watch for a little bit. Um, Can you tell us about some of the little events happening inside Aquatic Adventures?
2: Well, there's so many things going on, and I'm just going to talk, you know, especially highlight some things that are coming to us from West Marin. By the way, I don't want to forget, we have a wonderful Ocean and Bay Film Festival. There's about 15 short films, and there's wonderful films uh, about the Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuary, the Cordell Bank Marine Sanctuary, um, the Bay Institute, the health of the San Francisco Bay, the life and health of the Northern Elephant Seals that reside part of the year out at the the seashore and so forth. So um, people can get a whole panorama of things that are going on here off the shores of Marin through this special film festival. Um, you know, we've got, by the way, two great West Marin photographers who, whose work will be part of the Aquatic Adventures Pavilion, and that's Marty Knapp and Philip Green. We have a wonderful exhibit about fishing in the Tamales Bay from the Conatich family, a wonderful Croatian family. They've been fishing uh, on the Tamales Bay for many years. There's a wonderful exhibit about West Marin aquaculture from the Drakes Bay Oyster Farms folks, which is quite interesting. Um, also, as you mentioned, the elephant seal from the Point Reyes National Seashore, the exhibit by the Gulf of the Farallons and the Cordell Bank folks. The Girl Scouts will be there with their wish fish wall. Fairgoers can create a wish to save and improve the health of the bay and, and, and hang it in this school of fish here in the exhibit. Um, there's a model of a leatherback turtle, thanks to the folks at the uh, Turtle Island Restoration Network.
0: I saw that model. It's beautiful.
2: Yeah, and it gives people a sense of sort of the grandeur and magnitude of the, those animals. Um, there's a boat that was just built by the Spal- Spalding Wooden Boat Center in Sausalito, the Charlie Merrill. It's a gorgeous hand-built sailboat. Um, we have an old uh, recreation of an old Pomo Thule boat, too. I'm sure. Obviously, it's a reconstruction. It's not an original one, but it certainly gives fairgoers a sense of what the watercraft like were off the shores of Marin uh, a couple of centuries ago. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to see and a lot to do.
0: Well, it sounds like it's a nice place in the um, the aquatic adventures to Take a load off and take a rest since there's so much going on outside and there's a the little film festival. People can sit down and relax for a little bit. But it sounds like there's something for everyone. And what are the hours of the fair?
2: It's, um, well, Saturday, June 30th through Wednesday, July 4th. The Aquatic Adventures Pavilion is open every day from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m., of course, it's free with gated admission, as are the fireworks concerts and 28 carnival rides. Ooh. And, of course, we have the free fireworks show every night at 9.30 p.m.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jim, thank you so much for just giving us a call and giving us a quick update on the uh, event coming up. I'm sure you're excited for it to kick off.
2: And a particular one final note, Jennifer, of yes. particular interest to Marinites, we have a former beloved um, folk singer from West Marin coming to the Marin County Fair on Wednesday, July 4th. And that's Jesse Collin Young, who oh, for many years great. lived on a rich trip in Inverness. So he'll be performing on July 4th at 6 and 8. So it's a bit of a homecoming uh, concert for this former um, resident uh, of West Marin.
0: That's wonderful. For folks that want to um, see what some of the other music and uh, events going on, or they can just go to which website?
2: www.marinfair.org.
0: Fabulous! Thank you, Jim, and I'll be seeing you very soon.
2: Thanks, Jennifer. See you soon.
0: All right, take care. Bye bye. Great time to get the folks out and the family out to experience um, the Marin. Watershed and ocean water surrounding this amazing county we 're very lucky to have that, so please come on out and celebrate the rest of the uh, citizens and and communities coming up to party and play outside. hopefully the weather will hold it 's been beautiful. Um, I want to mention that there 's one other little event that you might be interested in um, a marine life art show happening up in Santa Rosa. 40 original oil paintings of undersea marine life from a Northern California artist, Donna Schaefer. She had I met her a couple weeks ago, and she she dives all up and down California for her inspiration for her art. And she's having an opening reception on Friday, tomorrow, uh, June 29th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Finley Center in Santa Rosa. That's 2060. West College Avenue at the corner of Stony Point Road between 101 and Fulton. You can go to her website for more information and just see some a preview of her work at uh, www.underwaterpaintings.com. So we've had a busy show. I, I didn't know how I was going to pack it all in. I wanted to talk to Roz the whole time, but I, I really wanted to hear a little bit about the fair, too. And I hope... You were inspired by Roz's story, and if you have a chance to get online and and see her website at rozsavage.com, you'll be bound to be inspired. She's really quite an amazing lady. And maybe we'll see you at the fair on the Saturday or through July 4th. Come on down.